Hello, everyone. Welcome to season two of After the Last Dance. I'm your host, Alex Wong, and for each episode, I will be joined by my co-host, Russ Bankson. Before we get started, I wanted to give a shout out to the Soul Savvy team for giving Russ and I this platform to chat about Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. Soul Savvy is a sneaker platform and community that provides you with the tools and resources you need to beat the bots to successfully purchase the products you want for retail. For more details, please check out soulsavvy.com, S-O-L-E-S-A-V-Y.com. All right, everyone, welcome back to After the Last Dance. So I know that the documentary series is over now, but because there's still so much to talk about, we are actually going to have a season two of this podcast. And we're going to start that today by giving a general overview recap, looking at winners and losers of the 10 part documentary. Russ, how are you doing today? Doing good. Doing good. Basically, I was thinking this is after after the last dance. So we could yeah. <laughs> if we have more seasons, we just add more afters. I think that's a great, uh, you know, I've always known you as a great uh, SEO guy, um, you know, Google <laughs> Analytics. So, I didn't even come up um, with this one, so. Yeah, and, you're uh, right. <laughs> I am looking forward to, like, switching around jerseys, though, behind me. Like, you know, we can uh, adjust as necessary. I don't think I have anything from the 99 Bulls, unfortunately, but, uh, you know, we, we, we can make this work. You don't have a game-worn Cornell David with you? Shockingly, no. Or a, or a yeah. Rusty LaRue. That would be fascinating, actually, to track down some of the game-worn jerseys from the championship season of, like, the super, like, benchwarmer dudes. But then again, I'm sure they all held on to those. Yeah, did you know, you know, I was going down a YouTube rabbit hole this weekend watching the first home game of the 99 season for the bulls and when they played the championship montage the song that they used was green day time of your life oh which i thought God. was hilarious that is kind of funny turning it into like a prom right i mean i feel like that song got played like at every occasion like that back then anyways okay let's get into this recap so we're gonna go through some winners and losers but before we even get to that we have to talk about so a few people involved in the documentary and michael's former teammates well horace grant came out and said this week that um the quote unquote um first of all he doesn't think this is a documentary which uh, we can get into but he was angry at michael he called michael a snitch he said that michael got the last word on everything which i mean true but also you know it's a documentary about michael and you know he also mentioned that scotty pippen is upset and it seems like through other sources it's been confirmed that that scotty does not like how he's depicted in this documentary what are your general thoughts on all of this i mean it just makes me sad you know like here's a team that did about as well as a team could do. I mean, they did do as well as a team could do. They won three straight championships, and in Jordan and Pippen's case, six out of eight. Yet, you know, they still don't get along 20-odd years on. Like, ideally, and I didn't think of this until afterwards, and obviously, like, COVID-19 and how, you know, this came, a lot of this came together late, you know, made it impossible. But I was thinking, like, man, it sucks that, they did solo interviews with all these guys. Like how much better would it have been to get like Grant, Pippen, Jordan, Jackson, Kerr, Rodman all together in one room, you know, and, and let them kind of talk amongst themselves. I mean, I'm sure it's happened to you, you know, in your career and it's happened with mine. Like there's nothing better than getting a couple of NBA guys together because they're going to bounce stuff off themselves that, a, maybe you wouldn't think to ask and be like, 
interactions between peers is just so different than interaction between, you know, journalist, documentarian, and subject. But I, I just think it wouldn't have happened. It would never happen. And part of that is scheduling, obviously. Part of that is probably ego. But it's just like, I can't imagine these guys sitting in a room and having a conversation and getting along, you know, like Scotty and Michael and Horace even, or Scotty, Michael and Dennis. Like, and that, that just, it just seems tragic. Yeah, no, I think you bring up a, a really good point. I mean, if Tiger King can have an after show episode where they dial in the cast members, I, I feel like ESPN can probably pull something similar off and you know scotty has a pretty prominent role as an espn analyst so i think at some point he's probably gonna speak on this and you know i'm, I'm interested too in your thoughts on do you actually agree with you know horace and scotty being angry at how they're depicted because you know horace um obviously has been cited for having a very close relationship in with Sam Smith and many believe that he was one of the main sources for the Jordan rules. Um, that information is not new. And, you know, when I look at Scotty's case, I mean, if you're watching this documentary and, and you're learning about the bulls for the first time, I feel like you don't come out of this saying that, you know, Scotty had the migraine in game seven, Scotty didn't check in against the Knicks. Like those are things you hold against him, but he was also such a critical part of the team's championship run, his MVP season in 94, MVP caliber season in 94. And also they showed in detail how he fought through uh, his back pain to come back and play in game six of the finals in 98. You know, if I'm Scotty, I honestly don't think he was depicted that terribly. No, I mean, I think Scotty, if anything, is certainly a sympathetic figure and one of the heroes of the whole thing. I mean, you know, even the, even the part where when Jordan was retired and they compared Scotty's leadership style to Jordan's and how he was always the guy to pick other guys up. You know, I feel like all those Bulls teammates from Rodman to Kerr to, you know, obviously Cartwright had his issues with the 1.8, but, and Kukoc, like all those guys praise Scotty. You know, I, I think Scotty is looked at fondly by the guys who played with him while Jordan still has that aura of like guys being scared of him. You know, 22 years later, Judd Bushler waiting for him to pop out of his Vitamix in his kitchen. Um, it, it's just a different thing. So, Scotty, to me, I feel like it's painful to see those those things crop back up again and and to have to revisit some of your your worst moments. I get that. And especially, like, millions of people being introduced to them if they hadn't known about them already. But Horace is a little bit different. I feel like the Sam Smith stuff came up not long after the book came out and he was blamed then. And I, you kind of feel like that stuff should have been handled by now, you know, whether it was Jordan or whether it was Jackson or anyone or Sam himself this all could have been cleared up. You know, Mike coming out and saying like, well, it was Horace. That, and I'm going to risk it all here, but in a lot of ways, Jordan reminds me of Trump. And he also reminds me a little bit of the next guy ESPN is going to cover, which is Lance Armstrong, where it's like, Michael is so caught in his own way of seeing things. And, you know, Obviously, I think the Trump thing comes up just because winning clearly is the most important thing to him. The difference being that Jordan actually did win and Trump, I don't know what he's doing. But 
I feel like even if even if Jordan heard or if it was explained to him that no, Horace wasn't the main guy, like yes, he talked to Sam, but so did a lot of other people. He just has it in his head that that's what the story is. And he's going to continue to share that. So I can definitely understand Horace's frustration with that. I love the idea of them like having to go outside somewhere though. It's like, damn Horace, like you guys are both in your fifties now. Like maybe bring it down a notch. Although if I'm Hor- if I'm Mike, I don't know. I don't want it with Horace right now. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a, maybe they can set up a pay-per-view. Maybe that is the after show. Um, you know, in rewatching the series this week, I feel like we need to dive a little bit more still into the whole poison pizza story and the five guys who delivered it. The more I think about this, um, just there's a lot of plot holes in it. It's uh yeah, I mean, different little things trickled out. Apparently they tracked down the actual pizza place, which was a pizza hut, which is weird that you don't, mention it and i think that's where you know the story gets interesting because it's like well why would you not mention it especially a pizza hut because everyone knows what pizza hut is so do you not mention it because of potential legal ramifications and if you're worried about those is there a possibility the story's not true um yeah i I, there's definitely a lot of unanswered questions with that answer Yeah, you know, I think, you know, people speculated so much when Michael retired and tried to tie it to his gambling. Now, that conspiracy would have involved thousands of people uh, through different channels to kind of keep that under wraps. Whereas if Michael, Tim Grover, George Kohler and the security guys want to tell this particular story, it only needs to be kept between like, say, four or five guys, right? And unfortunately, a lot of the security guys have passed away too. So really the voices that we heard, George, Tim, and Michael, those are the only ones that have to stick to their story. And, you know, we'll never find out the truth, I guess. I mean, I, I, I still think the food poisoning thing makes more sense to me than the flu did. Just because, and I think we talked about it for that episode, just the way food poisoning works, it would make sense that he felt really deathly ill at the beginning of the game. And by the end, you know, even though he was probably weak from not eating anything, like was probably starting to feel better. So you could sort of figure out like, okay, you can probably perform, but yeah, you're going to be like blown out by the end. It is odd to me, just the idea that still that he would order a pizza to his room with all those guys there and not offer a slice to anybody. Um, You know, I know Mike's always got to win, but at the same time, like they made it abundantly clear that he took care of those security guys and his detail and, I don't know. I don't know. In in that particular case, like not sharing seems odd to me. Yeah. So, you know, having watched the whole 10 episodes now, are there storylines that you wish, you know, we could have seen or storylines that they touched on that you would have loved to seen more of? I'm really bummed they didn't address Craig Hodges at all because Hodges would have fit in into so many different areas of it from that first championship run. I went down a little bit of a YouTube rabbit hole and rewatched his three-point contest when he hit 19 in a row. And I had forgotten or I was going to say or didn't remember it, but that's the same thing. He not only hit 19 in a row, he hit the first 19 shots, which is insane. I mean, I get it if you like find your rhythm on that first rack and then 
go on a run, but he started with the first rack and didn't miss until I think like the, what would that be? Like the fourth money ball. So, you know, Hodges was just a ahead of his time dude who ended up getting, if, if you believe it or not blackballed from the league, it's at a point for being too outspoken, but he seemed like one of those guys who was willing to push back at Jordan. And it's a bummer that Jordan I don't know. The fact that he chooses to exercise his strength in sort of editing the story rather than realizing his strength is such that he can let the warts and all story be told and be, you know, be comfortable in the fact that like you did what you did and nothing is going to change that. I would have loved to have heard Hodges on the White House visits or, you know, just just to give another window into that era other than just relying on Pax and Cartwright and Purdue. Yeah, I think that was a glaring omission, um, you know, uh, in terms of what Craig Hodges could have added, like you said, to a lot of the different conversations that they touched on. You know, rewatching it, it really struck me too, and I think you mentioned this, is how much, you know, Michael just kind of retells the same maybe 10 to 15 stories that really define the narrative of his career, right? And we rarely kind of step outside of that comfort zone. Like when you think about him talking about his battles with the bad boy Pistons, and even when he talks about the gambling that people got on him for, even the controversial stuff, it it plays in a very safe space, right? Like he's able to talk about how, you know, if, if you don't think I'm a role model, then maybe I'm just not for you. Uh, you know, it seems like he's able to just sidestep these things by giving these grand statements. The other thing, and and I know you mentioned this, you know, Vernon Maxwell, um, you know, formerly of the Rockets tweeted this week that, you know, how come, you know, it wasn't even mentioned in the documentary that the Rockets won back-to-back titles in 94 and 95. Would you have liked to seen them at least acknowledge it or maybe even touch on uh, kind of a what-if matchup between the Rockets and the Bulls? I mean, when I first saw Vernon's tweet, I was like, wait a minute. No, you don't have to show that. Like, what does that have to do with the Bulls? But the more I thought about it, it would have been nice to kind of get that sense of continuity that the NBA kept going while Mike was away. You know, the fact that they did touch on the 84 draft and Hakeem Olajuwon going first, you know, it would have been nice to at least acknowledge that Hakeem wound up winning titles as well. And that as many times as people, you know, redo that draft, I don't think the Rockets have once said, like, man, I wish we took Jordan with the first pick. Like, they they still did the right thing, you know? And the fact that you can look back at a draft where the best player of all time goes third and still be comfortable with who you took first, I mean, that says a lot for Akeem Olajuwon. So, you know, I would have liked to have seen him get a little more shine. And even even to go as far as, you know, they spent a lot of time showing the Knicks – futility against Chicago, you know, give them credit for the one year they actually made it through to the finals. Yeah. You know, I think they did kind of just gloss over those two years, you know, outside of obviously covering it from Jordan's perspective with, with Pippen's 94 year and Jordan's return. Uh, Did you see that clip of a a recent ESPN interview with Carl Malone that came up this week when he was asked about Michael Jordan in game six? Carl Malone, a.k.a. the Black Randy Quaid. I mean, I can't really talk, but I, um, I appreciated that he had the cigar, too. I mean, you know, my response to that on Twitter was like, man, this was a moment you needed to put on an iPad and show to Mike. Yeah, that was interesting. You know, I'm surprised they just 
where do you know what the origin of that interview is? Why didn't they just put that into the doc? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. All I saw was like E360 or whatever. It was kind of out of context. You know, it looked like something that would have been done for the doc unless unless he let them do the interview and then decided he didn't want it to be included. I don't know. Yeah, because because they never they just completely skipped over him missing the two free throws. The the when Pippen walks up to him and says mailman doesn't deliver on Sunday, um, which I thought was a curious omission too because that's a huge part of that finals narrative right it is it is yeah yeah i mean you know and i get that you need to leave certain things out and focus on certain other things but yeah i mean there were definitely some some gaps that you would have liked to have seen more filled in yeah and i'll still never get get over them opening like episode eight with a bj armstrong versus michael jordan feud that goes for 20 minutes. So before we get into the winners and losers, I want to ask you, you know, obviously Michael is the focus subject of this documentary. You know, looking back at it now, after you've seen the 10 episodes, do you think we learned anything new about Michael Jordan? Did you learn anything new about him that you didn't know before? I don't know if I learned anything new, you know, like you said earlier, the, uh, a lot of his historic stories, whether it's LeBradford Smith or his getting, quote-unquote, cut from the high school team. You know, a lot of those have just become myth. It's basically the the however many labors of Hercules at this point. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, Mike cleans out the Oegean stables. But I think the one thing you get out of it is the fact that here's a guy who did – everything anyone could do in a basketball career. He won two Olympic gold medals. He won six NBA championships, six finals MVPs, what, five MVPs, six, uh, however many scoring titles. I can't believe I can't remember exactly how many scoring titles you won. I used to remember that. Old Russ is very upset at current Russ. But he did all that, yet none of this seems to have quenched that internal fire that kind of enabled him to win all these things and we got a sense of that in Wright Thompson's piece on ESPN when Jordan turned 50 and it was kind of a look at a guy who is like still trying to figure out like what his life is all about you know he's he's happily remarried he's the owner of the Hornets obviously can golf all the time but like there's something still eating at him at 50 okay you're not, you're less than 10 years removed from your NBA career. You just got in the Hall of Fame. But to see him now at 57, you know, a little bit of a little bit of a tequila gut going, the cigar lit, you know, clearly he's physically let go of the game. But man, I mean, the fact that mentally and emotionally, he's still mostly in the same place. I mean, that episode ender when he has to break off because his emotions are running too high. I mean, you, you almost you almost feel bad for him. Yeah, and, you know, I think that's such a fascinating thing, and that extends beyond just Michael. You know, you know, when athletes are on that all-time, you know, top of the list pantheon, and they've accomplished literally everything that they set out to do, and probably even more, um, and they're still not satisfied, or there's still something missing, or there's still a void in them, and you obviously see that in a lot of the present interviews with Michael Jordan, this is a really random example, but like one guy I always think of is John Elway. Like John Elway won two Super Bowls at the end of his career. And I remember reading this profile about him maybe a year or two after he had retired. And he, 
just admitted that like, you know, he had no purpose in life and it was the most difficult thing for him, you know, after his playing career. I mean, this, this, that could be obviously a whole other documentary kind of exploring how these guys deal with it. But I'm so fascinated by Michael's perspective on this, not only because we see bits of it in the present day interviews, but I mean, when you think about the guy retiring twice and, you know, coming back, like there was like nobody like him in terms of, you know, when he walked away from the game and the reasons that he walked away from the game, but then also the same reasons why he came back, right? So, you know, for me, I'm not sure we learned anything new, like you said, but I think it's fascinating to see where present-day Michael is at because he just doesn't seem like a very happy guy when he's walking through some of these memories. No, not at all. I mean, he seems happy enough on the golf course, but, you know, you, you contrast him with the guys who you know, always got, I don't want to say ridiculed, but criticized to a degree for not being 100% dedicated to the game, whether it was uh, Charles Barkley or Shaquille O'Neal. They seem perfectly comfortable in their post-playing careers. You know, it's still a shame to me that Jordan and Barkley, who were close friends for decades, have it all blow up because apparently Barkley criticized Jordan's team building as an owner you know on his on tv which is his job and and now they don't talk like like that just seems like so petty to throw something like that away over that it it just doesn't make sense to me and and yeah i mean seeing jordan in contrast with these other guys i mean that that's why it'd be fascinating to me to see how they interact with each other and the fact that we don't get that is so sad like I mean, Dennis clearly is still scattershot all over the place. You know, I would have loved Phil Jackson to be in the room with him to say, like, take your sunglasses off, Dennis. Can we, like, reenact that scene? And Scotty, I don't know. I still just love Scotty's voice. But Scotty seemed fairly at peace with a lot of stuff, but obviously at the same time, especially with that 1.8 seconds, kind of wants it both ways. I mean, he's almost too proud slash defiant. Yeah, you know, I'm not sure, you know, especially with Scotty, and we touched on this earlier, um, kind of what he really wanted to be depicted um, because, you know, what was shown is is pretty common knowledge, and I don't think anything shown about him was particularly unfair. So let's get into some of the winners and, and losers of this documentary. So I put together a list. I'm, I'm going to run these by you and get your feedback on these ones. So let's start with some of the winners um, I had John Paxson on this list just because, uh, by my rough estimate, he did not miss a single shot in his NBA career uh, based on this documentary, and he won an NBA Finals. Um, he helped clinch the 91 Finals um, in the fourth quarter of the clinching game uh, in, in Los Angeles and obviously hit that three-pointer against Phoenix. You know, we all know, uh, most of us know, uh, John Paxson's history as a Bulls executive post-playing career, which hasn't been great. So I feel like he's been redeemed somewhat as this folk hero from the Bulls' first three-peat. I mean, it's funny that you look at playing era packs and GM packs, and they look like entirely different people. You know, you go from the straw-haired, sometime mustache shooter to the goateed, bald-headed, you know, late-period packs. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's helpful for, I don't know if I want to say current Bulls fans, but more recent Bulls fans who only remember him as sort of the <laughs> the Jerry Krause of the modern era 
to remember, oh yeah, like this guy actually was good. He was sort of the the pre-Steve Kerr. And he had he had, you know, his his memories of of his playing days and his interviews were they were good. They were useful. They were he was no Justin Timberlake. Yeah, more on him later. So an, another winner I have is Michael Jordan's fashion. Now, I know, um, you know, current day, we, we make memes uh, out of Jordan's jeans uh, on a daily basis. But I feel like, you know, between his fits at the Barcelona Olympics or even during his college days at North Carolina and in the 90s, um, you know, the beret that he wore when they went to Paris for the preseason, I feel like his um, fashion influence and his fashion game has also been redeemed a little bit. Yeah. I. You could probably trace, and I, I think I haven't read everything that have, has come out. Obviously, the the Michael Jordan essay, Industrial Complex, has been in full swing, and there have been things written about his style. You know, I don't know if you can pinpoint an exact sort of time frame when he launched into baggy fit everything, Mike. There was a story about the place he went to get his suits made, and Apparently, he did want longer, bigger jackets so he wouldn't pull them down and baggier pants because he thought his feet were too big compared to how skinny his legs were, which I get. But when the end result is you end up looking like the villain from Who Framed Roger Rabbit, you might have gone a little too far in the other direction. I also read, and apparently this was common amongst some NBA guys, if I read it correctly, guys would put on their suit pants or their, their jeans or whatever after their shoes to avoid getting them wrinkled so you wouldn't be sitting with your suit pants on. So, I, you know, I don't know if the Jordan jeans thing came from that. Like, I need to put my jeans on over my sneakers so they need to be really big all the way through the ankle. But, yeah, pre-dream pre team or dream team and back Mike, perfect. And seeing some of those 80s fits was so good. Yeah, you know, next on the list, uh, a few people that were, you know, in Michael's inner circle, you know, the Sniff, the Sniff brothers, and, you know, in general, the security team that we met, you know, John, John Michael Wozniak and Gus Lett um, in particular. And also Ahmad Rashad, just, you know, because this guy was just, you know, skipping NBC pregame meetings, uh, driving to the arena with Michael, Ahmad's got all the stories, man. And I feel like um, he's gotten kind of like a second life now, just kind of going on Twitter and sharing stories. I would love to just read a book from Ahmad where he can just tell everything that he saw during his career hanging around Michael. Oh, my God. I mean, that would be another thing that would have been nice in this. Like, even if you couldn't get Jordan to sit down with a bunch of his ex-teammates, it would have been cool to have an Ahmad Mike sit down. Even if it was just like, I don't know, five minutes or less just because those guys, you feel like they knew each other better than anyone. They opened up to each other better than anyone. Like that would, that would have been a neat thing. But I, I agree with you. Ahmad is obviously a huge key part of this. And I think this just introduced an audience to him who maybe is too young to have watched inside stuff. In terms of teammates of Michael's, you know, outside of Paxson, some of the other guys that I had as winners, I, I got to go with Scott Burrell. Just because I think, you know, if there's one plot line or, or side story narrative that we couldn't have expected coming in, it was definitely, you know, Michael and Scott Burrell, who ended up playing a pretty key role throughout the 10 episodes. 
Um, you know, he's coaching now, I believe, in college. I wonder how his teammates or how his uh, players feel about him uh, now that they've learned all these things about him. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure they've heard a bunch of stories. I, I would imagine, I forget where he is, like it's Southeastern Connecticut State or something like that. But I'm sure he's regaled them with bull stories. At least I hope he has. I hope he hasn't used Jordan's uh, leadership techniques as much. But uh, Scott and Scott and Steve Kerr are probably the main two of his ex-teammates who, who came off the best just in terms of, you know, Kerr being kind of the designated, I don't know what I want to call him, but like, you know, Michael Jordan practice whipping boy who ends up becoming the hero towards the end. Obviously, Steve's a great storyteller in his own right. So, you know, who better to tell his own story? And the fact that we get essentially his bio in this, you know, as told as as deeply as any of the three principals is Mike, Scotty, and Dennis. So Steve definitely came off or came up with that. Yeah, and I don't know if you agree with this next one, but I, I had Scotty Pippen and Dennis Rodman on my winners list as well. And, and the way I look at this is, you know, we touched on how Scotty was covered in this documentary earlier. You know, I feel like for uh, the younger generation who might have just grown up hearing about these guys, you know, watching, um, you know, the, the way teammates and, and peers describe Scotty and Dennis's impact on the court and actually seeing the footage of it, I feel like cast them in, in maybe a better light and make maybe makes a new generation appreciate them a little bit more as basketball players. I would agree with that. I mean, Dennis obviously has the sort of plot twist from villain to co-hero, which is good. And Scotty, yeah, I mean, Scotty, I think the modern NBA fan maybe doesn't appreciate him as much as they should. You know, obviously it's easy to say, well, he wasn't even the best player on his own team. But going back to those Bulls days, there were times when not only was he probably the best player on the team out there some nights, but as the second best player on the Bulls, he was kind of at worst the second or third best player in the NBA. So you could also see how easily Scotty would slot into a current NBA team. You know, you go back to that 98 finals. Yeah, that's 22 years ago, which is an eternity in sports years. But, you know, as a big forward who could bring the ball up, shoot from deep, run the offense, I mean, he'd be he'd easily fit into any team now. Probably easier than Jordan would. I mean, Jordan is just obviously so would be so disruptive. Yeah, a few more winners. Um, I had Dolores Jordan. She was just delightful throughout this documentary and you know we'll, we'll talk about this a bit more on the next podcast Dolores, but you know Lars Jordan's skincare routine skin skincare routine Definite specifically winner. and helping push Michael to take that meeting with Nike in 84 um, also um, 80s and 90s hip-hop in general you know I feel like after watching this documentary I don't ever want to see another uh, basketball mixtape on YouTube set to any other kind of music um, <laughs> it's, it's just perfect um, like, like you can play that KRS one, like step into a world song to like, I don't know, the process Sixers. And I'd be like, oh, wow. Like I'm hyped. This team might win a championship. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it should definitely, the, the, whoever, whoever put the music together should win an Emmy or whatever this is up for. I don't, I don't know what's going to happen this year. It should win an Oscar for that matter. But, and, you know, last one I wanted to ask you about before we go into the losers category. Do you think Michael comes out as a winner 
You know, I feel like Mike's presence in this is so overwhelming that you can't slot him into either category. I mean, I just feel like he was the whole thing. So yes, he's a winner, but also he's a loser. And also he's the entire environment. I mean, He's just so big. To me, I mean, I, I th- there's a couple others that I would add to that. I think Nike was a huge winner out of this. You know, if you, if you go back to what David Falk has said about Jordan's endorsement deals, and he was really brilliant in the way he set them up. You know, he knew that if he did it right, one would feed off the other. And Nike would put so much money into marketing Jordan that he could go to smaller brands and say, look, we want you to pay X amount, but you're not going to have to do all this legwork because he's going to get promoted so much by Nike that you're just going to be able to feed off that. And, you know, I feel like this documentary was kind of the big umbrella that brought attention back to that. And Jordan brand obviously being its own thing, despite being sort of a division of Nike still, you know, that being the primary endorser that he's still connected to. I mean, I was seeing stuff like StockX prices of certain shoes were going up while the episodes were going on. You know, someone posted the difference between the price of the last last shot 14 retro before and after episode 10. And it was a significant amount, you know, uh, Chicago, the red, black and white Jordan one. I mean, those are selling now for like two grand. The, the prices of those like doubled in the, in the five week run of this. So obviously Nike's not seeing money off those, you know, they're not seeing money off resale, but all those shock drops they did during, and just the fact that people now I think have a, not only a better sense of where Air Jordan fit into everything, but sort of a recent way to see them being worn on the court makes a difference for them. Yeah, for sure. And we'll get into this more on our sneaker recap episode of yes. this series. Yes. So, you know, in the losers category, you know, I guess I will start with Jerry Krause. And, you know, I've thought more about this, you know, since the documentary. And I was listening to an interview that he did. And I think this was one of the last interviews that he did with Woj, um, I believe, from 2017, where, you know, he, he walked through his career. I thought Jerry Krause had a pretty incredible career in terms of what he did both in basketball and baseball. And, you know, at the time of him passing away, he had returned to baseball and he was working as a scout, I believe, for Arizona. Um, But, you know, setting that aside, you know, in the context of this documentary, obviously we've touched on the fact that because he passed away, he didn't get to contribute a present voice to the arguments. And, you know, I think for anyone that's watching this documentary fresh, you know, you come out of it thinking, wow, uh, this guy prevented the quote unquote greatest team of all time and greatest player of all time from continuing a dynasty, which, you know, is arguable. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately for Jerry Krause, not only was he the little roly poly guy, but he just kind of stuck his foot in his mouth whenever he talked. I mean, I just go back to that interview after they won the title and he used the word organization five times in like two minute quote. And it's just like, Oh my God, dude, like you literally can't get out of your own way. You know? And I feel like he was someone who was just like always looking for that next thing. And it's like, once someone was on his team, well then that wasn't, he wasn't going to get credit for that anymore. You know, people weren't going to give him credit 
for rolling the dice on Pippin forever. He was going to get that for that one year, you know, and then he goes and brings in Kukoc and that, that, that signing scene with the talking about the number seven in Europe, which I, every moment he had in that was sort of cringeworthy. And it's only unfortunate that he did pass away before he got a chance to respond to some of these things himself. But at the same time, watching him in the, in the older clips made me wonder like, man, if they interviewed him now for this, is he going to be just as hard to watch? And he probably would be. He wasn't, you know, communication kind of wasn't his strong point, which leads me to, you know, and maybe you're going to include him in this list too, but you know, Jerry Reinsdorf to me did not come off that great either. And whether it was laying stuff on Kraus or, you know, just kind of being disingenuous about things. I don't know. I mean, it, and maybe part of it is the current sort of um, political world we're living in now. But for me, like you pop a billionaire up on the screen and I'm just like, all right, this, this guy's not a hero, <laughs> especially an older white billionaire. I don't, I don't want to paint Jordan with the same brush because his, his billions came after the last dance happened. But uh, all, all those, I, I guess Reinsdorf and Jackson, like, they were all kind of almost too glib for their own good. And just like, it's easy to, to sort of push stuff off on Jerry Krause, who's not around to answer for it. Yeah. You know, I, I think with Jerry's passing, it did make it easier. I think it put Reinsdorf in a really easy position to, to be able to push off things and try to come out looking in, in a better light. But I mean, you know, you want to blame all the infighting and the backstabbing that was happening in the Bulls organization. I mean, you're the owner of the team. You have to bear some responsibility of it. And he's able to repaint a lot of stuff. Like I was the one who flew to Montana and convinced Phil to come back for a final year. I was the one who told Scotty he shouldn't have signed that deal, you know, at the time in, in 92. So there is kind of a lot of kind of just kind of retroactive kind of fitting in of the narratives there. The, the other loser for me was just the nineties media in general, you know, watching it back, Bob Costas, you know, I, there's nothing I love more than Bob Costas um, hitting me with like some real poetic shit um, before the start of a finals game. You know, I always got a kick out of that, but I mean, he was going after Dennis Rodman during a lot of the 98 finals, you know, calling him a freak show, um, saying that he had brought the circus to town, you know, particularly referring to him going into wrestling, but also other clips uh, like when Barbara Walters interviewed Dennis Rodman and was basically like, why are you like this? Um, Connie or, <laughs> yeah, Connie Chung, like it doesn't end. Right. And obviously all the media members who without any concrete ev evidence, like wrote newspaper articles connecting Michael's dad's murder to his gambling habit. You know, obviously this is a whole other conversation and, and I'm not sure uh, media has gotten better today, but looking back at the 90s media and the coverage of these guys at the time and specifically with Rodman to me, uh, I thought really jumped out. I mean, if you look at that, there, there's, there's a lot to be said and I think he got more criticism for it back then than he would now, but I go back to Ahmad and there's a lot to be said for members of the media who are actually friendly with the players and who are more sympathetic to what the players are dealing with. I mean, I can speak to that being at slam in the nineties, we would always get shit from beat writers about how, you know, we're just like fans or, you know, our approach was different, but 
I feel like when we actually did sit down with guys, we would get better things out of them because we were the ones who were listening to the same music they were. We, were, we, we knew what their references would be. You know, we could talk to them about more than why did you miss that shot at the end of the third quarter? You know, that was interesting to me, especially in some of those scenes when they showed Jordan answering questions about, you know, the, the innumerable questions about what he was going to do the following year, whether he was going to come back or not, and having to answer that from 50 different reporters in 20 different arenas. And it's just like, man, like, you're just not going to get a different answer. You can keep asking the same question, but I don't know what's going to come of that. You know, and then someone like Costas, it's funny, like, so, and I'm sure I watched that quote unquote movie rebroadcast of game six of the finals. And when it was over, I switched over to SNY because they've been showing the, the Mets 86 world series. So I switched off Costas calling the 98 finals game to Costas calling the 86 world series. And it happened to be like right at the moment they're showing the beginning of the broadcast and they have Costas go on the set of cheers to interview Sam Malone. Cause he was a former Red Sox pitcher and they have literally the entire cast of cheers out here with them at the end. Uh, who is it? Diane? Is that, is that who it was before man, whatever the, the first Sam Malone love interest and she passes Costas her number. It's just like such bizarre scripted stuff happening but, you know, it just kind of says, like, the gatekeepers in sports were the gatekeepers of pretty much all sports. Marv Albert was doing the World Series in 86. Yeah, you know, the, the point you, you brought up about kind of like the fraternizing between journalists and players has always been fascinating to me. And, you know, I think Slam is a really good example. And you talked about, you know, I think, you know, when you build those relationships with players, um, you know, when you do sit down with them and they understand that, you know, what slam stands for and what audience it, it, it is um, marketed to, they will, you know, talk to you, probably open up and tell you stuff that they probably wouldn't tell other journalists. And it's always been a funny thing to me that, you know, certain publications or journalists get picked on for having those relationships with players when that is literally just how the business works for everyone. Like Woj has relationships with all the players and, and agents, but, you know, I, I feel like there's just different standards, but that's a whole different conversation. So let's move to a more important conversation, which is Justin Timberlake, you know, a highly anticipated cameo. Well, you know, at least in this household, um, which uh, didn't really pan out. Uh, Justin Timberlake, do we believe that he was saving up money? What did he say? He was saving up money just so he could go buy some Jordans. Yeah, he was Wasn't like he already like lawns. on the Disney channel? <laughs> but like, that's what I'm saying. Is he mowing lawns when he's already in the Mickey Mouse club or whatever he was in? Like, I don't know. I mean, to me, like, you're not I understand that Justin Timberlake now is a is a Jordan rep. I don't know what he is. He's not an athlete, that's for sure. But you know, he obviously gets shoes from the brand, like he's been a friend of the brand for a long time. You could have had any number of people attest to how cool Air Jordans were in the eighties. And Justin Timberlake is not the one I would have chosen. I mean, Nas wasn't really the one I would have chosen either, only because when I think sneakers and rappers, like I don't think about Nas. Like, I don't remember even, like, seeing what Nas was wearing back then. I think we, we did talk about it at the time. You know, it's like, LL Cool J would have been great. You already you used his music in the docs, too. Like, he, he could have definitely spoken on that. Or Common, you know, who popped up every once in a while and who was a ball boy for the Bulls, 
who told that story in one of the interstitials about signing Michael's autograph for somebody, which makes me suspicious of like virtually every Michael Jordan autograph that's not upper deck authenticated or is from the eighties. Yeah. I, I, I don't know why. Cause I always, I expected Timberlake to pop up again. I don't know if you did like, just like, there were a couple guys in this doc who were kind of one and done. You know, Joe Klein didn't get as much burn as I thought he would. But yeah, Timberlake was certainly the most egregious of the, okay, cool. You got Justin Timberlake to use in the promo stuff, I guess. Yeah, all I'm saying is we need to su- subject a few of these people to a lie detector test. Um, number one, Timberlake about mowing his lawn to buy Jordans and anybody involved with the whole poison pizza story you talk about one and done guys did ron harper even pop up after he told that one craig elo story i feel like he was not involved in in the second three-peat the retelling of the second three-peat no i mean that was pretty much it and he would have definitely been an interesting guy to hear from obviously in the actual 98 finals bits i was actually surprised we didn't get a return of a lot of those guys sort of it you know as we as we get to the end and actually what the last dance was about you know, I thought we maybe would have gotten more from all the, even the main guys. I mean, Phil and Rodman, you know, but they all kind of just faded out. You know, Jordan just sort of eclipsed everyone at that point. And John yeah, Stockton hey. to tell us that he was never scared going up against Mike or didn't feel the aura. It's like, yeah, because of course you didn't. Um, yeah, it's funny. There, there's um, like even guys like, you're saying like Phil or Tony Kukoc. Um, there was a lot of guys that they did. They just didn't involve. Um, another celebrity loser for me was Jerry Seinfeld, who had the most awkward locker room visit. Um, I had to put him on this list just for that. Yeah. Jerry, Jerry and Michael is like the meeting of the two incredibly rich nineties people who have literally nothing in common except for having massive amounts of money and are able to interact kind of just based on their shared celebrity status for a few minutes until they're mercifully separated by Phil Jackson being like, no, you got to go. I just wonder, like, I'm sure Ahmad, if he wanted to, could have sat in through the team's entire pregame conferences and probably could have gotten himself announced with the starters. But yeah, Jerry, I think, is sort of on the the lowest possible tier of uh, celebrity access. Yeah, so, so I was referring to that Jerry Krause interview that he did with Woj in 2017. So one of the tidbits that Krause mentioned was he used to ban uh, Reverend Jez- Jesse Jackson from the locker room uh, after the game, or Phil Jackson did. So that was the story, because he was telling a story about how he let Phil run the locker room, and Phil would, you know, ban you know, celebrities or other prominent people from coming into his locker room and breaking the sanctity of it. So, so I'm just right now imagining uh, Ahmad Rashad just cutting the line and just, you know, uh, shoving Jesse Jackson out of the way so he could go in to hang out with Michael in the back, which, you know, honestly, there's like a 45% chance that that actual scene happened. It's, it's interesting to see like sort of the cumulative, like, who gets in and who doesn't. I mean, the idea of a young Leonardo DiCaprio fresh off Titanic can be in the Bulls locker room while the champagne is still flowing. You know, again, like who is the, who is the gatekeeper on that? 
you know. In- oh, so so you know what? It's funny. It's funny you mentioned that. It was Ahmad. Ahmad told the story. He spotted Leo as he was going to the back and, and told security that Leo was with them. So again, uh, Ahmad's just pulling strings, man. Ahmad basically ran Bulls PR. Fair. Fair. <laughs> And, you know, shout outs to him. So um, some of the other losers, uh, I had Patrick Ewing on this list because I just keep thinking uh, as a fan who is watching uh, basketball and learning about Michael Jordan for the very first time, you come out of this thinking that Patrick Ewing was beaten by Michael Jordan over and over again since 1984 and never really won a game. <laughs> it, it, and got you know, that dunk put on him by Scotty. Uh, I forgot about that even, yeah. Pretty much the, the only thing that saves Ewing for me from being like straight up loser is that he never gets the Jordan iPad treatment. Like to me, like Gary Payton handled himself fairly well on this doc and like his profanity per word ratio is fantastic. But once they handed Mike that iPad with his current day interview, I'm like, oh, man, this isn't going to go well for Gary. Like, the guys where Mike got the last word, it was just over. You know, to me, like, Reggie Miller fared incredibly better because he never got Mike sort of just giving him the brush off, the disparaging, like, whatever about Reggie Miller. Gary Payton, I mean, oh, my God. That was just – I. I would have loved to have watched this with Gary Payton when that scene came up because the profanity per word ratio would have gone through the roof. I'm sure. Yeah. And that's all I'm saying. Like if guys like Horace and Scotty are upset, I mean, Gary has a case like this guy is one of the best defensive players of all time. And the narrative is kind of just Michael brushing him off and not giving him any credit for um, the Sonics winning two games in the finals. Some, other teams, you know, I'll, I'll probably put the Knicks on this losers list just because, you know, they had to play a role in this narrative and, and their role was losing to Michael over and over again. You know, Portland as well, you know, the, the Jordan, Clyde Drexler stuff, the 92 finals, um, you know, the 84 draft, not, not taking MJ. The Jazz, you know, I put the Jazz on here just because, and I know we've talked about this, but if I'm a jazz fan and I'm replaying those 97, 98 finals, I'm just like, man, if these two or three things go different, these two, three possessions go differently. We maybe probably come out with one championship. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I agree. I don't know if you have him on here and, but Isaiah Thomas, Isaiah did not have a good documentary. I mean, I only left him off because I feel like, um, like, yeah, no, you're right, though. But but he just, like, it, it definitely didn't make him look any better. I mean, he had to actually go back and explain why they left the court without shaking hands and why he got left off the Dream Team. And, like, like that second part is, like, that's not even – it's not like it was his choice. He didn't have anything to do with it. Ask Rod Thorne. Ask Jordan. Like, why are you even asking Isaiah about it? Like, why does he have to relive that? all over again relive a team he didn't even get to play for i mean that oh to me that was just brutal that was just like that was just sort of executive producer mike being like yeah we're gonna ask isaiah about being left off the dream team and we're gonna leave it in um oh i mean that, that just seemed so extra they should have also asked them how it was like to um call every single bulls game for nbc 
in, in the late nineties, which again, I still think is hilarious that him and Doug Collins were the main guys. Um, the only other loser I had on this list was just uh, old NBA locker rooms because they just were all so trash. And I honestly can't believe that um, NBA players had to uh, change clothes and fraternize and prepare for games in those conditions. Yeah, it's it's definitely hard to believe it. the things guys had to deal with. And, like, that's even – for me, like, I never even saw some of the really bad ones. Like, I never got to go to old Boston Garden, which I've always heard was a nightmare. And, like, even Chicago Stadium, I'm sure. Like, I'm sure the home locker room wasn't great there. I mean, from what we saw, obviously – the United Center was a lot better, the modern buildings. But even even Madison Square Garden, I recall, like, when I first started covering games there in, like, the mid to late 90s, like, 96, 97, like, that home locker room was not that good. Yeah, so before we wrap up, a few awards um, I wanted to hand out. So the first one is the alternate cut of the last dance I would most like to see. Now we saw a brief clip of Bill Wennington uh, with a camcorder on the team plane or team bus earlier on. So he's got to have hours and hours of footage just sitting somewhere. And I I just want to implore Bill, um, you know, and anyone who wants to start a petition, you know, Bill release, release the Bill Wennington cut of the last dance. Uh, I think we need to see this. The Wennington files? I mean, I, I would definitely watch anything any of those guys got. I mean, I'm sure you're right. I mean, Wennington is the guy we see, but it wouldn't surprise me if other guys were filming too. I know that was a common sight at NBA All-Star Games. You'd have superstars sitting on the sideline taping things. I actually asked Vince Carter about that once, if he ever saw Shaq or KG's footage of his dunks, and he hadn't as of yet. I can just imagine some of those guys have boxes and boxes and boxes of those little tiny camcorder tapes tucked away somewhere. But yeah, hopefully will come to light. Hopefully some enterprising producer will get their hands on them. And, you know, even if we don't get the Wennington last dance, maybe we get like Shaquille O'Neal's view of 10 years of all-star games. Yeah, I think that'd be awesome. And, you know, it brings up the topic too. Uh, you know, coming into the documentary, there was a lot of hype about the behind the scenes footage that the crew had and the NBA entertainment crew had recorded during the 97, 98 mm-hmm. season. Did you come out of it thinking that, you know, it was a little bit underwhelming from that aspect? I definitely wanted more of it. I mean, they showed, I feel like we got almost as much of it from a ratio perspective in that game six reshowing as we did in the entire series. You know, the stuff in game six was great when they showed them in the huddle you know, right before like plays in the end, like stuff you would have never been able to see while the stuff was still going on. Some of the stuff they did use in the last dance was probably some of the best footage. I mean, one of the best scenes in that to me was Jordan with the bat and the cigar talking about BJ Armstrong with Harper, you know, like that was incredible. Like give me a lot more of that. You know, one thing that that sort of struck me afterwards, I went back and rewatched uh Jordan's Hall of Fame speech. I actually reread the Jordan rules and some other stuff. I've been meaning to go back and reread some of Phil's books too. I did reread Sacred Hoops, but there were a lot of stories that were retold, you know, and it's not just MJ's stuff, which has become sort of rote, but even some of the stories Phil Jackson tells, you know, those have been covered so much. So it would have been nice to have more time instead of 
rehashing things that either people are familiar with or you can find elsewhere and give us more of the stuff that hasn't been released at all yet. Yeah, you talk about Hall of Fame speech. I mean, Michael brings up the whole interaction with Brian Russell at the practice facility um, where Brian was like, you know, why'd you retire? I want to guard you. And it goes back to, again, it, it does feel like they were just going through the steps of touching on every single iconic moment and story that has been told. And like, you know, I'm just a podcaster with a fake virtual background on Zoom. <laughs> so I don't want to tell uh, Jason and the team how they should have uh, directed this 10-part documentary. But, you know, you mentioned the way that they really dove into the footage for game six of the 98 finals. I would have loved if they just did that for like one game of either each series or each playoff run, right? I feel like earlier on in the documentary, there was a need, it felt like, they felt like there was a need to show a brief clip from every single game. So we would get like, you know, Jordan going to, you know, shooting the threes and doing the shrug or, you know, Jordan getting a layup and then we see a 73 to 64 final score. It would have been cool if, if they just picked a particular game and really honed in on it in that way. But once again, I'm just sitting here with a virtual background offering up suggestions. Um, my best quote of this uh, series, you know, I laughed really hard the second time around watching when Scotty was just like, talking about skipping his surgery, just talking about how he wasn't going to fuck his summer up. Uh, I think just his delivery and, and like you mentioned, like Scotty's voice, um, that was great for me. A runner-up was probably Gary Payton describing Dennis Rodman as the fuck-up person, the guy who just fucks everything up. So those were the top two for me. Yeah, I mean, if I had to add two more, I would certainly add Horace Grant's straight-up bitches about the Pistons, which, you know, obviously got a lot of play that night. And also... And I, I think he was like a – I don't know if I'd put him in the winners and losers, but as far as sort of a, a, a show stealer would be Roy Williams. And, you know, obviously Dean Smith is passed so, and Roy Guthridge. So, you know, we're missing some of those older North Carolina voices. But Roy is an assistant when Mike went to at UNC. His, his quote about how he was – Mike was the only guy he ever saw who could – turn it on and off and he never turned it off I mean I was ready to sign a letter of intent right there I'm 49 years old and I can't play worth a lick anymore but man if Roy wanted me to go to go to Carolina I'm there I'm there tomorrow I'll bring my own shoes you know it's one of those things where like you could tell why Mike wore his UNC practice shorts for literally the rest of his career, no matter what sport he was playing. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because I was going to say, we, we saw, and you mentioned this when we watched the episode, we saw the shorts hanging um, at his baseball locker too, right? When he yeah, was talking about yeah. watching the night I mean, before. That would be, again, that would have been an interesting story to kind of go back on. And like, I don't know how much they would have gotten out of him, but, you know, I'm curious to know, like, how did that start? You know, did you go to your first Bulls practice and just happen to have him with you and or did you wear them for a game and you had a great night and then you decided you had to wear them the rest of your career? Like, and I, I actually did ask him at one point. One of the first interactions I ever had with Michael Jordan was practice of the 97 All-Star game. And I asked him something about whether he was wearing his Carolina practice shorts. And I think I followed it up with whether they were the same pair. And which seems like a super weird question to ask, and I guess it is. But at the same time, it's like, man, really? Like, did your North Carolina practice shorts really last 15 or 16 years of playing basketball? Because I don't know. I don't know if I have any shorts that are that old. 
And yeah, you know, as, as someone who's been wearing the same pair of shorts for three weeks during quarantine, uh, you know, I do think, um, you know, uh, I think Mike could have gone his whole career with the same pair of shorts. The funny thing to me is Michael doesn't strike me as the type that would be superstitious about mm-hmm. these types of things because he works so hard to make sure that he has an edge over everyone. And he obviously believes that he's the best. Like, it, it strikes me as funny if, if Michael is superstitious about, about certain things. Like yeah, that. or, you know, whether he was at the very beginning. You know, that, that's the only thing I wonder. And I brought up Wright Thompson before, and everyone should read, if they haven't already, his recent piece on Mike's Carolina roots. And, like, you know, you got a little bit of that throughout, and I enjoyed that, the way it kind of popped out through the series. Like, there were moments when he would say something or he'd be talking generally with a teammate or or with Gus or, you know, someone else, and, like, the South would just pop up and it's, you're reminded like, Oh yeah, Mike, Mike's from North Carolina. He's not just like Michael Jordan, global superstar from nowhere. So, you know, you wonder like maybe the shorts were just a matter of sort of keeping in touch with that kid from North Carolina. So that does it for me for um, the recap. I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to add before we wrap up Russ. No, not a lot. I mean, I, you know, I, I rewatched a little bit of it. I still need to, I still kind of want to block out 10 hours and sit down and watch like the whole thing in one shot. We sort of said it. I do wish that late period or current day, Scotty, Dennis, and Phil all had more time in some of the later episodes. I feel like there were times when they would just get lost. It, it ended up being almost too much of a Michael Jordan as winner story rather than this is how the entire team came together and you know they they obviously sort of caught that with the steve kerr diversion and you know we'll tell steve's entire story in here i just wish there was a better balance of it yeah so that does it for us for this episode i just want to thank everyone again for listening and as i mentioned up top even though the 10-part documentary series is over now. Russ and I will be doing a season two of this podcast. Uh, We'll be doing a recap um, from a sneaker perspective of the Tampar documentary. Probably revisit a lot of other things too. Maybe take a look at what happened to the 99 Chicago Bulls and how the rebuild of the Bulls worked out after what happened to all the key guys Mm -hmm. after the last dance. Uh, Phil Jackson, Dennis Rodman, Scottie Pippen, Michael Jordan, We'll even check in on like a Luke Longley as well, um, just to tell the rest of his career. And, um, you know, uh, so we have a lot of fun things in store. So, you know, make sure you subscribe if you haven't to After the Last Dance on iTunes, Spotify, and any other platforms that you use to listen to podcasts. And shouts again to Soul Savvy for, you know, not breaking Russ and I up yet, uh, (laughs) like Jerry Krause did the Bulls. And we will catch you on the next episode. Stick around. There's a lot more to come. The sneaker game is tough if you're in it alone. Getting the latest pair of hype sneakers is becoming increasingly difficult these days. As soon as you try to purchase, the shoe is out of stock. If you want to improve your skills, you need to learn the tricks of the trade. Be smart and get equipped with the right tools and information you need to help you cop the sneakers you want. Soul Savvy, the exclusive sneaker community.